Amen. The word of the Lord, yeah? Say this with me, will you? Thanks be to God. Come on, lift your voices. Thanks be to God. So when you hear the word of the Lord, your response is? Try it again. The word of the Lord. Yes, for his word. Would you stand together with me and as Eunice continues on the keys, let's pray together. I trust as you came in today, you received um, a copy of our congregational prayers so that you could participate and interact in prayer together with us. And this would not just be me praying at the front of the room, but it would be all of us praying together responsively to the Lord. Splendor and honor and kingly power are yours by right, O Lord our God. For you created everything that is, and by your will they were created and have their being. Beloved of God, the church must never forget that one of the best ways for us to establish credibility in the world is by routinely and fearlessly confessing and repenting of sin. And we lose our credibility by refusing to name our sins. Together, would you? Almighty God and Father, we confess to you, to one another, and to the whole company of heaven that we have sinned through our own fault in thought and word and deed and in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon us, forgive us our sins, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, raise us up to serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. O Lord God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without men. Amen. Alleluia. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Would you lift your voices? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Remember, O Lord, what you have worked in us, and not what we deserve. And as you have called us to your service, make us worthy of your calling through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. O God, you make us glad with the weekly remembrance of the glorious resurrection of your Son, our Lord. Give us this day such blessing through our worship of you that the week to come may be spent in your favor through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And Father God, we continue to join our hearts in crying out to you for one another and the needs that are represented in this room, needs of healing, needs of provision, needs of breakthrough, needs of peace of mind and strengthening of heart. Needs, O oh God, of sorrow and grief and lamentation. We lift one another up to you, those standing beside us on our right and left today. 
we lift up each other as brothers and sisters together. Minister your healing in body, soul, and spirit. Wherever healing is needed, where there is anxiety in our minds, bring peace. Where there's turmoil in our hearts, O oh God, bring your calm and your serene order. Where there are questions that we carry without any easy answers, we ask that your presence would encounter us in those questions, in the aching of our hearts, in the agony that we may be dealing with concerning family, concerning loved ones. For the trouble and the disturbance and the conflict we may be having at work, among family members, with a brother or sister in Christ, would you arise in each and every circumstance and situation in the strong name of Jesus? And Father, we continue to cry out to you against the atrocities that are being committed across Ukraine by Russian troops deployed by war criminal Vladimir Putin, murdering innocent civilians in cold blood as they move from invasion to occupation to even attempted genocide. We continue to carry in our hearts the anguish of the Ukrainian people and the pure heroism of young and old, of women and children and men, believing in life worth living to die for. You, our Creator God, you cry out in each one of them. And as we hear your voice and their voices as well, might we come to our senses, O oh God, to our truest and to our best selves in You, Lord. In You. Continue to lead and guide our governing authorities as our Prime Minister is even visiting Ukraine even now over this weekend. Give wisdom. Give breakthrough. Give discernment. May we as supporting nations rise up and support in any and every way we possibly can, knowing that this is not just something that affects Ukraine, but it affects the democracy of all of us, the liberty of all of us. And we thank you for this liberty. We do not take it lightly. We do not take it for granted. We thank you for these things that you bless us with. But ultimately, we look to you as our Lord and King, that you would rule and reign over this situation. And as we have prayed together, even just a moment ago, let your kingdom come and your will be done and your purpose and your promise to be fulfilled even in this. In Jesus' name. Jesus name and all God's people said amen amen God bless you as you're seated thank you for spreading your wings a little bit there in prayer trying to just creatively make ways for all of us to engage together in these times of prayer and um, and scripture reading um, and uh, we will uh, we'll continue to just uh, work together around those things.
we've been moving through this series on Eucharist, and we've been doing this survey of all of Scripture, particularly the Older Testament, and we're moving into the Newer Testament, and we have been looking of late at the uh, prophets and individuals like David and Moses and, uh, and Abram and those, those patriarchs that uh, God began His whole story of rescue and redemption with. And now we've come to this point of being ready to consider Jesus the Lamb of God. Would you say that with me? Jesus, the Lamb of God. Everybody wake up now and let's say it all together with one resounding voice. Jesus, the Lamb of God. One of the earliest heresies, false teachings, that the early Christian church fought was something called Marcionism. Marcionism, the conviction that Jesus should be interpreted in abstraction from the Older Testament. It, it was a dualistic belief system originating in the teachings of a man by the name of, of course, Marcion of Sinope in Rome around the year 144. Marcion was a theologian and an evangelist, and in essence, he taught that the benevolent God of the New Testament was different and opposed to the malevolent creator God of the Old Testament. Jesus was not to be associated with the God of the Old Testament. And so he created this separation and this removal. He saw as it, it, as it being irreconcilable uh, between uh, the New Testament and Older Testament, the, the difference between, as, as he saw God anyway, the legalistic, jealous, and genocidal God depicted in the Older Testament and the transcendent God whom Jesus in the Gospels called Father. These were two different gods. They were not the same. By way of a combination of misperception, misunderstanding, and an extreme interpretation of St. Paul's theology, Marcion concluded that Jesus came not to fulfill but to overthrow the law. Christ was an emissary of a God whom we have never known. This is what Marcion taught. And this isn't something of just ancient church history. This still affects segments of the church even today. There are those that I bump into every now and again who essentially hold to this same train of thought that the Old Testament is no longer relevant, it's no longer needed, Jesus came to throw it out and kibosh it, so don't pay any mind to it because we serve Jesus now, and the God that Jesus demonstrates to us is not the God of the Older Testament anyway, so there's no point of even bothering with that. Yet, the interesting thing is, is if we do that, we cannot really understand the Jesus of the New Testament or many aspects of the New Testament. Because it's to try to gain a proper view and understanding of God by looking at God, particularly the God of the Old Testament, as Marcion would say, through a paganized lens. The primary reason that I have had us spend so much time drawing together in recent weeks the Older Testament themes of covenant and sacrifice is because 
I share an anti-Marcionite conviction that it is impossible to make sense of Jesus apart from his Jewishness. You can't do it. You can't understand grace properly. You can't understand the mercy of God properly. You can't understand the justice of God properly. You can't understand Jesus. The categories that Paul and the Gospel writers use to present Jesus as the Christ were almost exclusively drawn from where? From the Hebrew Scriptures. The New Testament book of Hebrews alone. Just think about that. Try reading Hebrews without having any context of the Older Testament at all. It will make absolutely no sense to you. Now, Hebrews is a rather dense and fully freighted book to begin with. But if you remove it from its root system found in the Older Testament, then you're really lost. There must be some sort of Older Testament awareness to understand it properly. One reason that we have today such a difficult time appreciating Jesus is that we have become, knowingly or unknowingly, we have become effectively Marcionite. That is to say, we have become indifferent to and or ignorant of the Bible and the Older Testament in particular. Without a proper Hebrew-Israelite preparation, most of the Christological language and teaching that we find in the New Testament, that is, all of the teaching that is around Christ and involves Christ and is about Christ in the Newer Testament and the doctrinal tradition that we hold to in our faith and our creeds, without a proper Israelite understanding and Older Testament context and preparation, we all of this just remains opaque to us. We can't make sense of it at all. For example, in the official teaching of the church formulated, and I'm going to give you just a bit of church history here because it's important for us to understand where our faith has been shaped and honed and developed throughout the course of church history. In the official teaching of the church formulated at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, Jesus is described as the coming together of two natures. This was an important council of the church fathers that took place. What was going on was with this Marcionite heresy, there was a struggle even to understand the nature of Christ. Was He really God's Son? Was He really divine? Or was He just human? And so there was all kinds of conflict and controversy and false teaching going on around the nature of Christ as well. And so the church fathers felt it was important to come together and to discuss this and to hammer this out and to determine a solid understanding around this. Jesus is described in as a result of this council that took place as the coming together of two natures, divine and human in the unity of the divine person. We, many of us would say we believe this and we adhere to this, but we don't, we don't always necessarily have an understanding of how this came about. How our faith was shaped from the Scriptures in this way. Through the leading and direction of the church fathers. Though this can seem desperately abstract this formula of divine and human united in the divine person of Christ, 
This formula takes on density and resonance for us when we consider it against the backdrop of the Israelite theology of covenant as we've been doing in these recent weeks. As we saw from Abraham through David, Yahweh pledged that He would be Israel's God and Israel would be His people. However, despite God's fidelity and faithfulness, the covenant consistently came apart due to the people's sin. What the first Christians discerned was that in Jesus, the long-desired covenant was finally fulfilled. That divinity and humanity had indeed embraced in the Incarnation. That God's will and the will of faithful Israel had fallen at last into harmony. And so, this is precisely what, in their more philosophically accented language, the church fathers of the Council of Chalcedon were saying. The Chalcedonian statement is but a more conceptually exact rendition of what John the Evangelist tells us in the prologue to his gospel. And I've had you turn there. John 1 verse 14. In fact, let's read it together. It's on the screen here for us. Lift your voices, would you? So the Word became human and made His home among us. And this was the issue that the church fathers were dealing with. The divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ and the union of that, of those two natures, in the one divine person. The Word of God's covenantal love, the Word, the Logos, the Word spoken and the Word in person, the Word of His covenantal love, which was addressed to Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah, as we've looked at in recent weeks, had now entered into a radical union with human flesh of this particular Israelite, Messiah Jesus from Nazareth. And so, in this Jesus, the longing of Israel and the desire of all nations is fulfilled. Now, as we've been studying, covenant and sacrifice are always linked, as we've unpacked in the last few weeks. Therefore, when in the Gospel of John, John the baptizer spies Jesus, he turns to the group of his disciples in John 1 and verse 36, if you just scroll down to verse 36 in the chapter you have open before you, John spies, John the baptizer spies Jesus. He turns to the group of his disciples and he says, look, there is the Lamb of God. Lift your voices and say it again with me, will you? Look, there is is the Lamb of God. This is one of the first and most important interpretive keys that John the Evangelist gives us. Jesus is the one who will pay, play the role of the sacrificial lambs offered in the temple. It's the first time John the baptizer sees Jesus with his own eyes. And what does he say? Look, there is the Lamb of God. 
So in accord with our understanding, no communion without sacrifice, Jesus, the covenant in person now, will be a sacrificial offering as well. Jesus came, in short, to be the suffering servant that we've read about in Isaiah. Who would, through a sacrifice, take away the sins of the world. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it when he says that Jesus entered the world clandestinely and unobtrusively in the manner of a soldier sneaking into enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story, says Lewis, of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to partner with him and to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. <laughs> I love how he puts it. His mission, Jesus' mission, is the undermining of the fortress of sin. So let's look now at just a few gospel scenes. And we just have time this morning to begin to look at this. We'll pick it up again next week. But let's just look at a few gospel scenes that are helpfully read under this rubric, through this, this lens that, that, that I've just given you in place of this Marcionite lens that removes Christ from the context of the Older Testament and says you can't consider Jesus to be part of that because He's none of that. Jesus comes and He presents to us a completely different God who we don't even know and He has nothing to do with the God of the Older Testament. We're tossing that lens aside and we're looking now through a proper lens that the Scriptures give us, that the Gospels in particular give us. Look at a few with me. Even the most skeptical of historical critics of the New Testament agree on this. They agree that Jesus was, at least, in the earliest days of His ministry, connected to John the Baptizer, who just said, look, there is the Lamb of God. And their confidence is based on two criteria. First, multiple testimony. The baptizer, for instance, is mentioned in all four gospel accounts. There's multiple testimony that Jesus was connected, had relationship with John the baptizer. That's the first criteria that they, are, uh, that they conclude this on and are confident in this because of. And then the second is this, embarrassment. Embarrassment. In other words, elements that the Christian community would prefer to have suppressed, but that still find their way into the gospel accounts. These critics say are most likely based on historical fact. Because there was such an effort to try to hide them they're most likely based on historical fact that Jesus indeed was related and connected to John the baptizer. Why should the connection to John the baptizer be embarrassing to Jesus and the first Christians? Well, because John was offering a baptism of repentance and to him, consequently, sinners were flocking. So in the minds of these critics, that's probably something that's considered embarrassing to the early Christians. One would suppose that the first Christian authors would have been a wee bit uneasy presenting the Savior of the world as someone who stood in need of a sinner's baptism. Because think about this now. Jesus is coming 
to the waters to be baptized by John. What is he doing this for? So this is something they wanted to kind of conceal because if Jesus is being presented as the Savior of the world, why is He coming to the waters of baptism to be baptized? In so doing, He's saying that He's a sinner like everyone else. This is what their thinking was. And so they were a wee bit uneasy presenting the Savior of the world as someone who now is standing here and John has recognized him. Look, there's the Lamb of God. And Jesus then moves toward the waters to be baptized. But this very tension, in fact, provides the best clue for us in reading this passage. Matthew tells us that Jesus, in Matthew 3, verse 13, he records that Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And Jesus did indeed slip into the muddy waters of the Jordan and stood side by side with those seeking forgiveness, identifying himself with their condition. Can you just try to imagine this with me now? Imagine the perception of the people who understand that those being baptized by John were being, it was a baptism of repentance. They were sinners that were coming to John to be baptized in repentance. Why is Jesus, the Savior of the world, standing in line? if He's really the Savior of the world. Jesus was seeking to identify Himself in His humanity, the human God. God become human now in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, was seeking to identify Himself with those in need of forgiveness, identifying Himself with their condition and the effects of sin upon their lives. Think about it. Anyone passing by that day would have presumed that Jesus was one sinner among many in the crowd. But John says, look, the Lamb of God. So when John met him, he was taken back. He, he, he wondered what Jesus was even doing there. He tried, Matthew tells us in, in chapter 3 again, verses 14 and 15, he tried to talk, John the baptizer tried to talk Jesus out of it. And if you're familiar with the story, you remember I am the one, John says to Jesus, I am the one who needs to be baptized by you. So why are you coming to me? John was sincerely questioning Jesus. He did not understand what was going on. But Jesus persisted. And he says to John, it should be done. And watch what he says. For we must carry out all that God requires to fulfill all righteousness. Now, was this exchange simply placed in the mouths of John and Jesus to cover up the early Christians' embarrassment? Kind of after the fact. They will just kind of fabricate this and slip it in here just to, and then it'll make it'll smooth everything over. Or does it reveal something decisive to us about Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission? In point of fact, please listen closely. The phrase, fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says to John the baptizer, for we must carry out all that God requires to fulfill 
all righteousness. Would you say that phrase with me? Fulfill all righteousness. Say it again. Fulfill all righteousness. Do you know what that is? It's a sort of scriptural code designating both covenant and sacrifice. Interesting. That's what we've been looking at. When Israel followed the covenantal requirements of the Lord, as we've seen in recent weeks, Israel became righteous. That is to say, they became correctly ordered. And when the repentant sinner offered a sacrifice, they recovered a lost righteousness. Jesus is saying, we must carry this out and fulfill all that God requires in order to complete all righteousness. It was code language for covenant and sacrifice. Jesus' words to the baptizer, therefore, signify that He has come to realize the covenant, the union between divinity and humanity, precisely through a sacrificial participation in the condition of the sinner. In the manner of Isaiah's suffering servant, which we looked at last week, Jesus at the Jordan was identifying Himself totally with the condition of sinners. You and me. The crowd of sinners gathered there that day. He was announcing His intention in coming to the waters of baptism that baptism of repentance, Jesus was announcing His intention to bear their burden and assume their guilt. Plug in there, our guilt, my guilt, your guilt. He was accordingly the incarnation of God's own rather embarrassingly to the early Christians, God's own humility and condescension. The God who became humble, who humbled Himself. And Philippians, Paul unpacks this, Philippians 2, in, a, in such beautiful, poetic language. It's a song, in fact. Philippians 2 is a hymn speaking of the condescension of Christ, humbling Himself to death, even death on a cross. Just after the description of Jesus' baptism, we find in Matthew's Gospel an account of his confrontation with the tempter, Satan. Jesus is then led. Luke's Gospel tells us Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Isn't that an interesting statement? Have you ever felt like the Spirit has led you into the wilderness? How many of us feel that way? No. What am I doing in this wilderness experience, this desert? I mean, this, this, all this pandemic COVID stuff, this wilderness. Have we ever considered the fact that maybe the Spirit has led us into this? I'm not saying the Spirit is responsible for it. But in the occurrence of it, the Holy Spirit is seeking to bring about all of the redemptive purposes and promises of God as only God can redeem such things. So Jesus confronts the tempter in the wilderness, and here we see what the identification with sinners disclosed at the baptism 
looks like now in practice. Jesus makes this declaration at the baptism of repentance through John the baptizer. I have come to identify with the human condition, to identify with humankind's fallenness and brokenness and sin and shame and guilt. I have come to fully bear that. Now, what's that going to look like? Well, we begin to see what it's going to look like as Jesus enters into the wilderness, what it's going to look like in practice. After 40 days of fasting in the desert, interestingly evocative of Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Jesus meets the devil who proceeds in attempting to lure the Messiah onto the path of sin. His sacrifice will entail his coming to battle sin at close quarters. His willingness, therefore, to go face to face with its power to come under its sway. Satan first tempts Jesus with sensual pleasure. Matthew 4, verse 3. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Sensual pleasure, one of the most elemental forms of spiritual dysfunction and hedonism is to make the satisfaction of sensual desire the center of one's life. Sensual needs in and of themselves are not wrong. But when they become something that is the center, the very center of our lives, that the center of my life is simply just to have all my sensual desires met, That's called spiritual dysfunction and hedonism. And so it is that Jesus enters into this through psychological and spiritual identification. He enters into the human condition of the person that is lured by this sin. But then he manages to withstand the temptation and in fact to twist this perversion back to rectitude. Jesus told Satan, lift your voices with me, it's on the screen for us, will you? No, the Scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Sorry for that typo. It should say word. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we see Jesus do the same thing with the temptations of glory. Temptations of pleasure. Temptations of glory. The Scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Matthew 4, verse 7. The temptations to power. Jesus says to Satan, get out of here, Satan. For the Scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Now, I'm, I'm, we're just breezing over this passage. Look at it more closely for yourself. But Satan tempts Jesus with glory and fame, tempts Him with power, bow down and worship Me, and all of this will be yours. You'll have power over it all. And, and Jesus responds every time. If, if these perversions had been addressed only from a distance, only through divine fiat where God's authoritative command from heaven was kind of spoken against Satan that way from a distance, if that's the way this had been done, they would have not have truly been conquered. But when they are withstood by someone willing to fully submit themselves to their lure, they are effectively exploded from within and undermined, defeated. And this was the strategy of Jesus, the Lamb of God. 
he was willing to go toe-to-toe and face-to-face with these very things in order to fully identify himself with the human condition, with yours and mine, and overcome so that we might overcome. We see it repeatedly in a number of the gospel scenes where Jesus is tired out after his contact with the sick and the lost and the sinful. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, we find an account of a typical day in the life and ministry of Jesus. The people press in on him from all sides. The closest taste I ever got, I I was really identifying with Jesus when I was ministering in Pakistan on one occasion. And the people literally are right here. They're all around you. They're so desperate for you to pray for them. And here Jesus is in Mark's Gospel. We find an account of a typical day and and the people are pressing on Him from all sides, compelling Him to find refuge in a boat, the disciples do, lest He be crushed by the crowd. And at one point there are so many surrounding Him and seeking His attention that He couldn't even eat. Mark tells us that then Jesus went off to a secluded place to pray. But even there, they sought Him out. Coming at Him from all sides. In the magnificent narrative of the woman at the well in the Gospel of John, we hear that Jesus sat down by Jacob's well and John says He was tired out by his journey. John 4, verse 6. This description is straightforward enough on a literal level. Who wouldn't be tired after a morning's march through dry country? But Jesus is also weary from his incarnational journey into human sin and dysfunction which is signified to us in this story by the well. Jesus says in John 4, verse 13, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, he says to the woman. Indicating that the well is emblematic of erroneous desire, her tendency to fill up her longing for God with transient goods, the pleasures of this life that the spirit of the world offers. Money, pleasure, power, prestige, honor. In order to effect a change in her, the Lamb of God has to be willing to enter into those things with her. To enter into her dysfunctional world and to share the spirit of weariness and toil of it. Are you seeing this? Do you see how Jesus relates? Jesus doesn't condemn her. Jesus doesn't judge her. Jesus doesn't start slandering her right there in some self-righteous fervor. You're pursuing all these things, and here's what you really need. Let me tell you what you need to do. No. He enters into those things with her, with us. Enters into her dysfunctional world. He enters into her brokenness. He enters into her heartache. And he shares with her the spirit of weariness and the toil of it. And then he begins to point her to a well of water that satisfies. J.R.R. Tolkien keenly appreciated this sacrificial dynamic that we're exploring here. His great Christ figure in The Lord of the Rings, Frodo Baggins, the Hobbit, brought about the salvation of Middle-earth precisely through his entry into the heart of the land of Mordor, disempowering that terrible place, 
How? Through his humility and his willingness to bear the full weight of its burden. All of this, all of this was, however, but an anticipation of the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb of God. All of these stories that we read of Jesus are building and building and building up to the ultimate sacrifice that will be carried out. To what? To fulfill all righteousness. And to do so, not just as God, but the God who has become human and entered in to our condition and our heartache and our brokenness and our weariness and our dysfunction to enter into the toil of it fully and to carry it all to the cross in sacrifice. The final enemy that had to be defeated if God and his human family could once again sit down together in easy fellowship of a festive meal as we've looked at in recent weeks was death itself. And that's the defeat we'll dig into the next time we're together.